You're listening to Living on the Edge, a weekly news podcast with a focus on edge, cloud, and mobile, featuring thoughts and analysis of these issues and more by tech industry veteran, the CEO of Mobile Edge, X, Jason Hoffman. I'm your co-host, Dan Benjamin. And uh, by the way, if you'd like to share your thoughts and feedback about this or any of our episodes, just visit livingontheedge.show. There's a contact link there. We would love to hear from you. And uh, sitting here right across the, the podcasting table with me is uh, Jason Hoffman. Jason, how are you doing? Hey, Dan. Yeah, no, I'm happy to join you live in Thanks. your Austin studios. It's fantastic. Thanks for uh, for visiting. I appreciate when here. you can I mean, it's make an amazing it here in person. Setup. It's an amazing setup. I mean... <laughs> It's incredible. I mean, just look around. Look at the tech. Look at the... Look at the. No, n- I know. If anybody's seen, like, the Joe Rogan podcast where they actually film it out of Austin as well, I mean, like, imagine that, but larger, more successful looking. <laughs> right, less red. Yeah. Direct <laughs> access to barbecue. It's, it's an amazing <laughs> setup here. Yeah. 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 So here we are. Here we are. So, I mean, uh, how have you been? It's been a whole week since the last time we talked, and um, you've been busy over there. Shipping I've stuff, been, delivering been, messages yeah. and messaging. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Doing lots of lots of stuff on the internet. <laughs> well, so is Ericsson. Oh, yeah? Did you hear about that? Ericsson has put its 5G on uh, Google's Anthos. Oh, wow. This yeah. is a big announcement <laughs> that came out from both a joint announcement, as you would say, from Google Cloud uh-huh. and Ericsson. It's a partnership. They're jointly developing 5G and edge cloud solutions uh, in order to help communication service providers, CSPs, or as or as you would say, CISPs. CISPs. Well, you know, we have to we have to pronounce every acronym on on this show. So, but they say it will digitally transform and unlock new enterprise and consumer use cases. Jason, I don't know what what that means. What does that mean? No, I mean it makes it makes. Is this a big deal? Should I be more excited about this? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, a few years ago, a lot of people in the, uh, traditional telecom equipment manufacturer, yeah. uh, you know, type space, meaning Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei. I mean, everyone largely standardized on Kubernetes as a base platform for their own application development. Uh, and so, uh, Kubernetes was created by Google at the end of the day. There's some other you know, startups that supported Kubernetes because people left Google's to do startups. Mm-hmm. But it's fair to say that theoretically, uh, the Google Cloud's commercial version of Kubernetes, also known as Anthos, mm-hmm. would uh, be now, why, a really Wait a minute. Good, why, why do they have to call it something different? Everyone else in the world knows it as Kubernetes. Why are they calling it Anthos? Uh, because Kubernetes is like a almost a component, if you will, you mm-hmm. know, the base sort of platform. And right. it is the name of a, an open source project where the name was probably, uh, perhaps even, um, you know, like, which I, I don't know this, but it could have been copyrighted and then donated mm. to an external foundation, like the cloud native computing foundation mm-hmm. or somebody like that. So it could technically be a trademark of an open source project now. Uh, and uh, when you make a product, uh, you generally try to come up with your own trademark sure. for it that describes the commercial offering that you have. Uh, and so Anthos to me is a meant to be a full-blown commercial offering that Google Cloud has that is meant to include parts from the open source project, but presumably 
has other capabilities and needs beyond what's just what you can just download from open source, right? And, uh, you know, so, you know, it makes sense that if you are doing a lot of application development on Kubernetes as a base platform that you go and put that on offerings that, you know, the creator of it basically has. I mean, the more uh, funny thing about reading this, having worked at, at Ericsson, I mean, the, the Silicon Valley D15 Labs uh, is uh, run by a good friend named Jan, Jan Soderstrom. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they do a lot of great work there. And then uh, the quote in here, though, is from Nicholas, who runs Ericsson in North America, but then they refer to um, Tim, which is Telecom Italia. Knowing how Ericsson works, uh, it's a pretty bullshit article. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Yeah, because um, uh, one, of course, Nicholas is a very influential person in sort of what gets done relative to his customers. Uh, and then, you know, he probably is on a short list of people that could run the entire company one day. So you have um, that from sort of a political, you know, perspective, if you will. But um, there's a whole nother peer of Nicholas's that runs Europe and Latin America together that has Tim as his customer that has an account team with that customer um, and then everything having to do from the 5G core itself and other applications are developed in, in an entirely different product management organization that lives in Sweden. You know, so I don't know how there's an article with Nicholas in here referring a peer of his as customer. You know, it's, you know what I mean? It's, a, it's sort of not something you basically go and, and see. And then there's nothing in here from product organization in sweden so then you know you sort of go oh, okay well um you know we'll see but you know it's a it's cool to see it's good i mean good but, things are happening in, <laughs> in the industry i'm excited about it you're excited about yeah. it yeah yeah, yeah re- realistically excited but as you said it's one of these um you know cool great makes a lot of sense put your software on one of the uh, best Kubernetes offerings on the market makes a ton of sense. Yeah, why not? We'll see. We'll see That's really the way everything's works. going, Kubernetes. It, and it really makes a lot of sense. Everything. I, everything. I know it yeah. more from, you know, not not from the telco side at all, mm. uh, but more from just the running servers and services side. And Kubernetes is pretty amazing. And once once you kind of dive yeah. into it, it really really makes sense that that's the future. So good. Uh, yeah, and I and I think it was. Um, um, you know, maybe I'll credit Brian Cantrell with this. Mm-hmm. I think maybe. I mean, because uh, I don't think I thought of it myself. Because uh, I'm not not that clever. But you know, when you look at Kubernetes and Docker as two examples, is they're just ones basically treated like tar, and the other ones like gzip. And so you know, they're just right. the, the you know. So literally, like on a typical Linux platform, everything is dot tar dot gz. Right, right. And so you're basically seeing dot tar, that's Docker, right. dot gz, that's Kubernetes. And so you're, you're, you know, you're just basically, it's a packaging mechanism. You know what I mean? Absolutely. That's a great analogy um, for it. And so, you know, there's always the type of thing where there has to be the equivalent of a pallet and then a container and then a container ship, you know? So, mm-hmm. but, um, but yeah, that makes, uh, 
makes it relatively straightforward. But yes, you're correct. There's always some type of common packaging that begins to emerge in things. Um, which, by the way, uh, people that do Kubernetes and people that do Docker as like a company don't, don't normally like when I describe it like that to them, that they're about as interesting as the the box that an iPhone comes in. Well, yeah, no, it's I mean, it's iPhone. not interesting. It's not unless you're, unless you're one of the people who's actually building the technology, it's, it's a commodity. It's a, it's a tool, you know, packaging. like I don't want to talk total, about total, the hammer. I want to talk about the thing I built with the total hammer. Packaging. And that's... Like, like, as you know, there's been a ton of innovation in how cardboard's done, right? Lighter weight cardboard. That's like more recyclable, but it's I mean, very like that's resilient. A, that's a separate show. We're going to need to, no, but look, but look how look how look how um, high end all the packaging is now. I mean, we have sort of Apple to thank for that. But yeah, yeah but you can still innovate in packaging, uh, and there's a number of things you can do there. And Godspeed, companies that want to go and chip away at packaging, right? Um, you know, but um, I think we do a show. You and I do another show called Packaging 2.0, where we <laughs> well, just talk about or five five because that's 5. A, 0, a lot there. On. How you want to count it? <laughs> no, but there's, but but yeah, it's a well, but it's it's a, um, you know, it, it's you know, it just depends on what one cares about. I mean, you know, meaning that, uh, um, you know, if I take something like my beloved children, I care about them, but if I put them in a car seat and I put the car seat in a car and then I drive the car on a road, all of that is just packaging details for the ultimate package of data that I care about, which is the kit. Uh, Sure. If you want to innovate in that packaging to make all of that safer, that's sort of the point. But, you know, in a lot of the times when those of us that fundamentally deal in infrastructure and infrastructure products and the B2B space around that and everything is that, you know, we can't have a bit of humility to realize that we're just doing packaging. (laughs) So, um, and uh, and then you know when you do that you find you know some inspirational sort of things from the packaging world, you know, right? You know, so but um, but yeah, sounds good. There's probably even the equivalent of uh, waste. You know, I mean, it's, it becomes pretty easy to sometimes do these infrastructures that just have too many layers and too much junk in them. Are you say you having you know some I mean? coffee? I am. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry to pick up. The no, sips. it's all right. That's all right. But uh, gotta gotta get vaccinated. No, you, yeah. Oh, you're getting vaccinated again. Gotta get vaccinated. Gotta get caffeinated. Shit. No, I'm fully vaccinated. Okay. You said yeah. you did say vaccinated. I did. I did. Um, it's, it's top of mind. Getting vaccinated right now is very top of mind. And by the is. way, if you're not vaccinated out there, grow up and, and go get stuck. I mean, it's not a big deal. Do the right thing. I mean, I don't know about you, but at least because you live in uh, Texas, so I'm sure that basically. It's not as bad. I mean, like where we are here in uh, California, mm-hmm. uh, normally, um, I think it's 94.4%. It's what I read of our zip code is vaccinated. Oh, that's impressive. So, I don't think it, it's anything uh, near it that. It feels, here. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, when I look at that statistic, I hate my neighbors less. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Because it's like, geez, okay. Okay. Okay, yeah. reasonable people doing the right thing for their community. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, and then um, when you home in on, rather than just 12 plus, you look at 16 plus, you know, there's still people in the 12 to 16 age. That's actually the the bigger group of people that aren't vaccinated. 
over. So you're like, okay, well, that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, people that are, you know, older than 16. It's like, okay, okay, people are doing the right thing. That's great. I actually feel good thinking that, you know, when I look up and down my street, that literally just about everybody around here is vaccinated. Makes right. me feel better. Yeah. But, uh, but yes, go get vaccinated and caffeinated in that order. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of now that you are caffeinating, yeah. we can talk about this next article because this one, I think our, our, our listeners, need, they need to sit down because okay. the satellite company in Marsat, which oh, is a, house, a household name, I think, has is unveiled, <laughs> of course, I mean, you know, you've got... You know, you've, I mean, they've been around since 1979. Coca-Cola. It's not like... Uh, yeah. Super Mario Brothers, yeah, and uh, in Marsat, I think are the three, the big ones that you get, okay. depending on you know if you have kids or not. The satellite company in Marsat has unveiled plans for a new type of communications network. It'll bring yeah. together its existing geosynchronous satellites yeah. with new yeah. low Earth orbit satellites and terrestrial five G. They're calling the new network Orchestra. It's designed yeah. to serve industrial wireless customers in difficult to reach places for the maritime aviation and defense sectors. And they're, mm-hmm. they're spending a, about a hundred million dollars over the next five years to build orchestra out. And they're calling it a dynamic mesh network. <laughs> okay. uh, what is all of this? mean? Uh, well, it makes sense. I mean, in the, uh, the combination with 5g, it just means that, um, uh, you know, if we take a very device centric or, you know, which, uh, the industry sometimes likes, like the, the term individual customer right. terminals, what do you think right. term, ter- terminal is, a uh, a word that for some reason still used in the space to describe literally the same as like a mainframe terminal. It's like the device. So they'll literally look at a smartphone and say, interesting terminal. Oh, so, so my iPhone um, is a terminal. Your iPhone's a terminal. Yeah. I mean, I remember just, calling uh, X window stations terminals back in oh, the nineties. Yeah, but, but literally you have, you have, you have people in the connectivity industry that still talk about that's you look at your iPhone and they'll talk about the terminal, uh, and, uh, the modem that's on the terminal, yeah, AKA the wireless chip that connects to the wireless network. But when you have a terminal with a modem, which is literally still the state of the art words used in the industry, uh, they're talking about a smartphone or any device that's connected to a wireless network. Uh, and, um, you know, look, of course the, the, the interesting thing about 5g continues to be the fact that it's supposed to be multi-layer, multi-standard, multi-band, you know, you're supposed to be able to deploy out 5g and get elements of 4g and Wi-Fi and, you know, all of that from basically one build. So you're starting to see more and more hardware, not so much care about it, it meaning it's literally multi-protocol. Uh, and, uh, so you're always going to have a device because that's the point. There's some application that's on a device, whether it's a, you know, iPad or tablet type device that somebody's holding and trying to, you know, look at a plan for something on, or it's an on-premise uh, drone, or, you know, it's a self-driving truck that's moving around a mine. Uh, there's always going to be a device that's there, you know, the quote unquote individual customer terminals. It's always going to connect to a wireless network. So there's definitely going to be, you know, a ground station there. Uh, the issue always is then is that is that local private network going to be connected to other networks or is it going to go back to a centralized operation center that you're looking at from a networking perspective security or anything else like that uh, a lot of the wireless networks of course that are quote unquote terrestrial 
the backhaul, meaning the connectivity that comes out of them that goes and connects it to the internet, is um, like physical fiber that's coming out that's laid down on the ground. Um, you know, for people that are in the satellite space, the basic proposal is let's cover the Earth with a globally available backhaul network that replaces fiber that has to go on the ground. Uh, and then, uh, and then one can actually go and do a few things where, yeah, you're, you're concentrated on areas where there's basically no fiber, you know, you know, it's not some sort of physical backhaul, you know, sort of like in that, uh, and, um, you know, so basically everybody in the satellite space is essentially in the 5g backhaul space, you know, like how do we actually connect these things that are on the ground to the rest of the world and to other capabilities? Um, and, uh, so you know, it's a, it's a natural combination to do. Um, I'm sure before it was 5G, they did this as 4G. You know, before it was 4G, they did it as 3G. There's a right 4G device sitting there on a container ship, and it's connected to a local 4G network that back, backhauls over satellite, uh, you know, sort of in that. And now you're, quote, unquote, doing that for, uh, you know, 5G. But But just like for everybody else, taking on the 5G elements gives them a... Uh, next step around what they can do from an orchestration standpoint and sort of what that means. Um, so I think it's a natural thing for anybody in the backhaul space to basically go and, you know, enter into They're They're basically doing a, rather than like a fixed 5g offering that's on premise, they're doing a satellite based 5g offering that's on premise and that's how they're doing the backhaul. Um, and I think it, it sort of plugs into, um, one other big question, if you will, and you know that is that the guys in the satellite space have the potential of being a um, like globally available network. You know, when you tend to look at um, you know sort of networking that's anchored in terrestrial physicality, mm-hmm. you know, because it's either fiber in the ground or a tower that's sitting there. Uh, you know, when you look at it, there's actually hundreds of thousands of companies involved in that globally, and it's all basically federated up and, you know, interoperable in certain ways. But there's not really like one globally available network provider. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's very interesting when you mention that. And, you know, they they were very careful to say in this article uh, that, you know, they're not focusing on consumer mobile phone users, that it's just... Global, what they're calling global mobility customers across maritime aviation, government enterprise. Yeah, and let's look at the the reality of that is probably which which I don't I don't know offhand, but um, you know the reality is that fiber in the ground is probably a cheaper option than these terrestrial satellites, or they're trying to actually make this a larger margin business. Right. So you know, they may not be able to hit the per megabit per second cost structure for the consumer space because it's already well covered by fiber in the ground. Um, and, uh, cause I'm, I'm sure that's not, whenever you see somebody focus, whether, whenever you see somebody sitting down and say, we're really going to focus on this sort of sector, you know, what they're saying is that, okay, well maybe that consumer space, we don't have the unit economics for it. Um, and if I had to guess, um, people in the satellite backhaul space don't have the unit economics yet for that. Um, but, uh, but it's, it's a, it's a good way to, it's a fine way for them to position it. So. I mean, um, could this kind of lead to them moving more into that space or into the maybe the private network space? I, I, you know, I think what becomes interesting, and this is even when you look at stuff that like what Tesla's um, 
or sorry, space, what SpaceX has been doing with like Starlink or what Amazon's been doing, you know, the fact, um, you know, too, that they're doing that type of satellite based connectivity. So, mm -hmm. you know, initially you sit down and you say that, well, since we're building this anyway, we might as well donate part of what we're doing to cover places that are too poor or too difficult to get certain consumer connectivity. Let's go and sure. do that to basically help out and we can use it to, to bridge things and get people going. And then let's also go and target people that truly care about this and are willing to spend whatever you need to spend to get that connectivity. You know, let's go do that. Um, you know, I think there's so much activity, you know, in this from say the Amazon and SpaceX's of the world too. And, and, you know, Emerset's been around again for 40 years now, right. I mean, 43 years, 42 years. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's a bunch of the, uh, Nokia guys now running it, you know, as of this year, um, there is sort of this open question of is space-based connectivity, you know, when will it get to the unit economics that sort of allows it to be a global backhaul network for everything and have enough capacity and sort of everything else like that? Um, that makes a lot of sense. But I, but I think it, it, it is sort of this open question of um, right now, any type of spectrum, uh, you know, meaning like, you know, the, 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 cause you know, remember everything's either matter or energy and most of people's experience with energy is in the form of heat or light. Right. Right. And when you look at light that goes from, yeah, visible light that we see, you know, but x-rays are light, gamma rays are light, UV is light, infrared is light, but so sure. are radio waves. Um, and when you, when you look at radio waves, we typically think of some of them being used for literally what you think of as radio, you know, like the radio you listen to or a ham radio you talk to, but radio waves are in fact what's used for all of 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G connectivity, all sort of Wi-Fi, all of that lives in um, typically radio and microwave part of the spectrum. Um, and uh, <clears throat> that part of the light spectrum, if you will, um, is regulated by countries exactly like their airspaces. So, um, so it means that, you know, if you're ever, a, you know, it's not a globally managed thing by the UN or, you know, something like that. Right. So I think when we start looking at, you know, the more sort of interesting future trend to keep track of is like, okay, if we start having these types of globally available, you know, space-based uh, networks that have better unit economics than terrestrial fiber. Um, what does that mean? Um, you know, when it has enough capacity for it or, you know, there's, there's, you know, something else there, or, you know, or is that sort of possible on some sort of point, you know, then it starts bumping up against, do we actually have to have a different regulatory approach in the space to how we're thinking about, um, this too, you know, or not. And I, and I think that's, that's the more interesting long-term thing out of that. But, but what they're doing here makes, makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean, you know, so super good. I mean, it's, you know, it's good. It's the things are happening and we're, we're on top yeah. of it here. Yeah. All right. Um, Microsoft and BT announce a partnership to shape the future of voice calling. Wow. Okay. That's kind yeah. of interesting. Kind of sounds, sounds like a big deal. Um, they have formed this partnership. They say that it will drive innovation and growth <laughs> okay. in the telecom sector and shape the future of voice calling. 
Um, uh-huh. So it, yeah. through, as part of this agreement, BT's global managed voice services will transition. Guess where they're going to transition to? The cloud. That's right. It's yeah. all going to the cloud. The uh, They say that it paves way for the development of revolutionary new cloud-based products and services for BT's voice customers and the wider telecoms sector. So now everything is going to operate, uh, all of the voice services that BT has are going to operate through Microsoft Teams. And uh, yeah, that's that's the announcement. Do you want the quote? Do you want the official quote? <laughs> I think it's fine. Okay. I mean, because I, mean, I have it here. I have it in my notes. I mean, you know, the funny part is it goes to, you know, you take BT, I mean, the T is for telecom. And when you think of traditional telecom, um, um, you know, in that uh, it, it is anchored in voice. And when things are anchored in voice, um, you know, I think what a lot of people don't realize is how much of even the telco's voice networks up until the recent years have been doing traditional analog telephone networks, meaning they're actually circuit switched really? networks that live in a telephone exchange. Yeah, do you remember even in the case of using something like 4G here in the U.S. from an AT&T or Verizon that sort of like all of a sudden about three years ago, the voice quality went like high definition sounding. Yeah, absolutely. But, but you know, whenever you sort of go on your cell phone and there's like this long pause and then a click and then you're on this call that's a little, you know, hollow sounding, you know, if you will. Um, literally, that was just the mobile networks reusing circuit switch telephony. Um, and, uh, you know, and so, um, you know, oddly enough, there's a lot of networks that are very, you know, it's the whole thing of analog versus digital and whether something's circuit switch or packet switch sure. and, 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 you know, the like, and, um, yeah, for some reason, um, um, you know, even up until, you know, five or six years ago, you know, certain people in the telco space were acting as if voice was best done by them uh and uh and then of course you realize that the quality that you get from a skype or if you use facetime audio on your iphone it tends to work better than just making a phone call yeah absolutely Uh, and that's there's you know there's also that feature i don't know if you have to use it there i have to use it in my house constantly which is the uh which is the calling over Wi-Fi, I guess, did they call it voice over Wi-Fi? It's an iPhone thing where if your cell service isn't great, you can go over the Wi-Fi signal. Well, and that's, that's just it is sort of how, uh, because the, the usual issue in the telco space was, you know, voice, voice was, it's a very, it's they're very bizarre in, in, in the industry and that, you know, voice in many ways is it's used by more and more people. Uh, you know, it's used quite a bit. Pe- people always default to it, but then telcos would go and look and say, "Oh, people are using less voice," and it's like, "No, people are using less of your voice," uh-huh. which is, which is a different thing than people using less voice. Uh, and um, the issue that always happened, I think, in the telco space, and you saw this in things like voice over LTE, which was meant to be sort of you know the thing that would come and replace circuit switch voice and the like, is that. Um, they would typically go to their vendors and ask for it for free because they said, well, we had all this sunk cost and all the voice stuff we have, we're trying to still use it. It's not like it's overused. Why do we have to spend all this money to replace something we already do? Right. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, then what you've had, in my opinion, is particularly since even the smartphones came out, is you've had this complete degradation in voice quality from a quote unquote telco. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think a lot of them in that are trying to still do some type of voice services or globally managed voice, like what it says here, is it mean literally this is like when an enterprise comes and says, you know, I need, I need phones in all my offices. Um, and you're like, okay, well, we'll go ahead and provide you with that service and it'll be, you know, $12 per desk and it'll be sort of this type of cost and everything else like that. Um, it makes a tremendous amount of sense for them to do that in a modern way. And why wouldn't you go ahead and, um, um, use a company that has very successfully scaled things like Skype on a good cloud. So it makes a ton of sense. Um, but, um, but, you know, not, not the, not the sexiest of thing, but, but you can, yeah, the voice thing's always bizarre. Always bizarre. Voice. Voice. But, you know, I, I still do know mo many people who will say, oh, FaceTime audio, call me or Skype, call me or whatever, because the cell service for them is just not reliable enough. But this doesn't really seem like it's going to address that directly, does it? Or is that the implication in this article? No, I mean, what I read here is it's literally, um, it's literally things like enterprise customers who right. are buying office-based managed voice solutions, right. is what it sounds like. Um yeah, exactly. Mapping out edge computing. How dense is it? This is an article mm. on a site called Light Reading. Yeah. And uh, what they're saying, the premise of the article is that if you were to do like a quick check of uh, what publicly available mapping information, as they call it here in the article, uh, that they're saying that there's not m very many edge computing sites in the United States at all. Uh, and that they're saying that in places like Wyoming and Vermont, that they don't even have much in the way of edge computing infrastructure, even in existence. Well, they, don't, they don't have much in the way of people either. Well, okay. that's that's true. And so yeah. this article kind of breaks it down and they look at they look at maps and they lay things out on the maps and where the sort of the hot spots are. Uh, what, what was your take on this article? I thought it was kind of interesting, but I mean, it makes sense that the higher the density of the population, the more infrastructure that there's going to be, you know, AT&T announcing uh, edge computing partnerships with Google and Microsoft, and it wants to roll that out in Chicago. But I don't know. So, I mean, what, what's your what's your take on this? Uh, I mean, if you look at like a pure, um, I mean, the general thing that is more useful um, in these conversations is because what's what's basically missing here is like a, a question of like, well, what's it for? Right. Um, if it is for a human being as an end user that's using a device of some type, whether it be a smartphone or they're in a car or something like that, then you really only have to cover areas of human population. And if it's a car, you only have to cover roads. Right. Right. So the, the, the density map is always going to basically 100% correlate with the interstate highway system. Right. I mean, that, that makes, makes sense. sense sure. You're not going to be like driving a car in the middle of, Wyoming, you know, most of, most of sort of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, so, um, edge right now, you know, if you look at most of the quote unquote cloud sites, 
you know, sort of, if you will, uh, is they sit at the major uh, network aggregation points in a country. And those major network aggregation points tend to correlate with um, port cities and traditional supply chain hubs. Right. So, you know, it's going to be in Los Angeles, Oakland, Seattle, you know, and then a St. Louis, a Chicago, a Dallas, a Houston, right? right? These are, these are supply chain transport hubs. Uh, and, um, networking tends to go along with that from a fixed line perspective and cloud sites tend to go along with basically being in port cities and major supply chain hubs. Right. Makes sense. Right. Uh, and, uh, when you look at edge locations, meaning locations that are meant to be embedded a bit, quote unquote, closer to the device in that, then the question from a coverage perspective uh, is, you know, on one hand, the realistic pragmatic coverage all the way to, um, theoretically possible. So if we wanted to do, and, and it's not like latency is a good measure of this, but if we wanted to go and say, um, okay, uh, you know, you get about a, a microsecond per kilometer, you know, on fiber from like a latency perspective, uh, let's say you want to cover everywhere in the world within a hundred microseconds, you mean know, 0.1 milliseconds in one direction, you know, because, um, you know, you want to have that type of density. Well, you basically make a circle that's got, you know, a diameter of 50 kilometers uh, uh, in that, and uh, you draw a square inside of there, and then you tile all land with those squares, right? If you go and you do that, you need anywhere between 100 to 250,000 locations uh, globally to cover all land mass within 0.1 milliseconds. Right, that's some very cool math there. It's not rocket science math, but but it's, it's literally. But you know what I mean? It's like yeah, yeah. Uh, but you have about that, and then and I say that because you know not not all land is a perfect square, you know. And so, and if you want to be within a millisecond, you're talking about ten thousand, twenty five thousand, you know, locations in there. Uh, now, when you ask yourself, you know, where do we have that type of of density today, it's basically where towers are. So, you know, a country like the United States will have 500,000, 600,000 base stations deployed out on, you know, a little subset of that from a tower perspective, maybe 100, 200, 300,000 towers, you know, right. something like that. Sure. Um, those all get backhauled into a site that aggregates them a bit. And then those go to like a core networking site, which then goes to like, you know, some sort of peering site with the internet. Um, and, uh, when you look at most network designs right now, um, that are sort of 4G based, if you will, you know, the network's always going to have to go back to these like core sites anyway. So most of the edge sites are just the next hop up from where clouds are, you know? So it's like, okay, if a cloud is in all the major port cities, like let's take the United States. So the clouds, like in all the major port cities and supply chain hubs. So you're going to see it in New York, Virginia, Miami, Right. Los Angeles, San Francisco, here, Chicago, Dallas, St. Louis, you know, like normal, normal spots like that. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, that's where the quote unquote public clouds live and where the big peering spots live and stuff like that. But then you sort of go and realize that um, 
um, like um, a, a simple way to think about it is there's 32 NFL teams. Okay. Okay. Um, NFL cities have people in them and stadiums them and that kind of thing. So then the 32 NFL cities t- tend to be the more populated cities. And so then you sort of sit down and say, okay, maybe there's six, seven, eight major transportation hubs in the United States, but there's 32 cities that have NFL teams. Um, those NFL cities tend to have uh, mobile cores in them. Interesting. You know what I mean? That makes sense. Um, and, uh, you know, so the next step in the quote-unquote edge uh, is about putting it in the next spot in the network, which is basically where the core is. And then when you start looking at um, uh, going and uh, taking it to the next spot, well, it's going to require the networks themselves to be more distributed. So maybe they'll be in these access sites. There'll right. be another layer out. Uh, and uh, then there'll maybe be even one further out where they're there with the tower and they're, they're on-premise. And there you start running up against whether an edge is supposed to be like a publicly available uh, cellular or Wi-Fi network with a publicly available edge, or is it a private network that's being built just for an enterprise, you know, sort of like in there. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it's just that, you know, edge sites are going to sort of correlate with the network topology that they sit in and sort of what the end user need is mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and most of it, you know, most of the use cases on edge right now is either the network itself. So the elements of 5G, um, you know, ORAN, um, SD-WAN, you know, type things, or they are uh, use cases that still have a human being as an end user. Uh, and so the edge deployments right now are going to naturally track a more human being end using publicly available cellular network type topology, which, yes, looks very incremental, looks one step deeper, you know, sort of like in that. And then, you know, again, on the other side, when you looked at, like, we were just talking about with MRSAT and full satellite coverage, you know, then it's sort of like, okay, well, something that is a satellite backhauled edge would naturally be more distributed, even, in, in these more remote locations. And so going into sparsely populated places like, you know, Wyoming and Vermont and that type of stuff is, um, you know, sort of pretty pretty normal right. you know, from that, that point sure. of view. <clears throat> but I think there's not, um, you know, the network coverage that you have in a country is the network coverage you have in a company country. You have to sort of look at the logic as to like why it's that place that that way in the first place, and then sitting there and saying that okay, some of these sites are going to do more than just connectivity; they're actually going to have computing elements in it that other people can use, and what that sort of looks like. Um, you know, the one thing that's sort of nice about Edge if you will, is that it's going to roll out like mobile networks roll out anyway. So you can just, you know, if the use cases are in a given geography, then you don't have to be in that geography. Right. If you need to be in another geography, you can be in that geography. And if you need better coverage there, you can do better coverage there and, and uh, stuff like that. So it's just going to roll out like that. And I think the thing that um, people either have a problem with that or not 
is it's not this, um, you know, while, while Edge reuses a lot of the architectural elements that you see in the quote-unquote public clouds, there are critical metadata and ownership differences. You know, the clouds, by definition, like literally NIST and everything else from the way they wanted to define it, was that clouds have to give this perception of infinite scale and infinite capabilities. Mm -hmm. And so to give that perception, a given cloud build is always much larger than what any individual customer on that cloud would need. Oh, yeah. You get what I mean? Yeah. And so, but that's never what an edge site will be. Edge sites, by definition, have mobility concepts around the back end. They have location concepts around it in that, really, if you wanted to go and define the technical aspect of what that workload is, you would say that back end workload itself needs location-specific computing and data, and that workload itself is very dynamic and mobile in ways that nothing is in the typical sort of enterprise or cloud-based deployments today. Uh, and then... It's actually consuming a scarce resource that potentially is owned by different parties and is in a specific country. And so it turns out there's sovereignty issues there too. Hmm. And so when you sort of go and say, how is Edge fundamentally different than quote unquote cloud? It's around these mobility concepts, meaning like workloads are moving around their own and, you know, moving all over the place. And, and, you know, the idea that your back end may, provision itself a hundred thousand times across, you know, a thousand sort of sites to serve a million people is a certain dynamism that doesn't exist in the most web backends today. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, and you know, that's a, that whole sort of living, breathing, you know, mobility of, of that backend itself, the core concept, if you wanted to think of it technically is location specific computing, which is, um, you know, a real core concept that has to be worked out quite a bit. And then there are sovereignty concepts that start butting up against regulatory privacy issues, ownership, and, and, and that type of thing, and what's allowed to leave or not. But there has to be sovereignty concepts in it. And you're fundamentally dealing with a scarce resource. And so there's scarcity concepts in there um, that, you know, the, an edge will never give you the perception of infinite scale, infinite capabilities. Um, and, um, you know, and so how, how things are scheduled there and used is a slightly different scheduler, you know, than what you'll see in a typical sort of like cloud workload. Um, and, um, you know, I don't, you know, I don't know, like, you know, in some ways when you read, you know, Mike Dano's work here about mapping it out, I mean, I think it's informational for people that don't know how the whole space works at all. Uh, you know, in it, but, you know, I sort of read an article like this and I think, yeah, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that, that'll be your, your summary of this one. No shit. Yeah. 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 Our, uh, our next, uh, article here that I want to talk about, you know, it's like, I've worked on different networks and cloud and this, and I, you know, but it's a little bit of like, yeah, no shit, mm -hmm. but it's a good snapshot for people that don't think no shit. So I'll, I'll pose this question for you. This is the headline of the next article. Um, it's over on a, a site called uh, Telecom TV. Yeah. Is private 5G a threat or an opportunity for telcos? And that's what this whole article does. They talk about uh, Qualcomm, Capgemini, um, 
and kind of what they're wanting to do or what they are doing in this space. And this is something that yeah. in the consumer space, you never really hear them talking about private 5G. You barely have 5G in the real world anyway. So I'm curious, what what's your thoughts on this? What's your take on this one? Uh, well, I think by, I mean, threat or opportunity for, for telcos, meaning, and presumably by telcos, they're talking about uh, mobile network operators. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, a threat or opportunities just trying to be a flashy headline. Um, I don't think it's a threat because operators don't do this today. So how's it a threat? Right. Um, and I don't see private 5G, which really when you sort of look at what it means by private 5G, it's no different than, you know, if you're an enterprise or you're doing a factory or something, you, you'll typically put a network in and you put like Wi-Fi in it, right? Right. Um, well, you know, the whole point here is that now you're putting a network in that is like Wi-Fi and 5G. Right. You know, which makes sense because the whole idea of being like, let, let's say you're an end user with a smartphone. Wouldn't it be nice to go to your office and have your phone work better? Yeah. And not have to be on Wi-Fi. Right. Absolutely. That's all it means. Like, li- like literally. Literally, it's like sitting there and saying that you'll have, you know, 5G connectivity and Wi-Fi connectivity coming from the same sort of like wireless network. But it's it's basically um, just the next step in how you go and build private wireless networks in a wide range of sites. And that's a market today. It's largely Wi-Fi, you know, in there. And then because um, more and more of like the chips that come from places like Qualcomm or things like EdgeQ, the chips do Wi-Fi and 5G on one chip. So you're going to be able to do both. Uh, and it opens up the idea that you start, you know, having, having in that. By definition, then, <clears throat> it's a market that does not exist for operators today. Mm-hmm. And so by definition, it's an opportunity for them to go pursue. Okay. Period. Uh, the question that's, is that's whether probably really go. how they look at it too. Right. I mean, it's just, this isn't, this is something no, new. They, they, the, you know, it's probably 5g a threat. I mean, you know, there's probably, um, um, I mean, you know, which is, yeah, I, I don't know. I would just go ahead and say my, my thoughts here. I mean, you know, in the, in the, in the mobile networking, operator sort of space, there's an odd form of um, envy and fear, you know, in that, you know, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll hear these things of like somehow Google's this massive threat, you know, that's never shared all the money they've made with an AT&T or, you know, something like that. Right, or, sure. um, or, you know, something that's the clouds a threat, you know, there's always this, 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 it becomes this very, um, it's just this tendency of using warlike wartime type analogies mm-hmm. for things mm-hmm. that aren't war. Uh, you know, if you look at um, most operators today, you know, they sell devices to consumers. They'll sometimes sell the devices in larger bundles, like a family, or they'll sell them in even larger bundles, which is an enterprise. Okay. Right. Makes you know, sense. I like um, that breakdown. But that, like, you sell a device to an individual or a family right. or a larger group of people that, you know, is a company of some size that ranges from, you know, 15 people up to 150,000 people. And you want to sort of go and, and do that. And then you're selling plans for those things. Plans are basically data plans. Now everything's done in a data packet. You know, so you, you, you talk in a data packet, you message in a mm-hmm. data packet, right. internet in a data packet, 
you know, the whole industry went through this transition of, you know, you used to pay for how many minutes you talked, you paid for how many SMSs you sent, mm-hmm. and then you paid like per megabit of data access, right? Yeah. Okay, now you just have a data plan and all of it runs on top of the data plan. Okay, and congratulations, the whole industry has made that transition into that. But, you know, if you're sitting there and you're like the CEO of a, of, you know, something like T-Mobile here in the U.S., the whole question is, what's the, what's, what's the cool killer devices that, you know, our end, our end customers are buying? What's the retail and onboarding experience for how they become a customer? And then how do we support them and keep them? Right? So, um, fucking up your device strategy is a threat. Fucking up your retail strategy is a threat. Mm-hmm. Fucking up your customer support strategy is a threat. Everything else is an opportunity for them to pursue. Um, now, if you look at it right now, um, not all mobile operators are offering this to their enterprise customers. Only right. a subset of them are, like basically the top 10. Right. Uh, and if you go and talk to those end customers and you say, hey, end customer, do you trust Microsoft to come in and do this for you? Or do you trust like large, typically monopolistic telco that hasn't been always the best vendor to you to come in and do this for you? They're very often saying that it's not the telco that they'll trust to go and do it. Right. Okay. So, um, <clears throat> surprise, surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's an opportunity for them, but it's an opportunity for a small set of them, you know, maybe 10 or 15 of the top 650, you know, sort of mobile operators out there. Right. Um, and, um, the whole question then is it's, and it's, it's probably towards industrial and enterprise customers and that, that type of thing. Um, you know, this isn't, um, something you'd care about as an end consumer, you know, it's just that, that, you know, Comcast or, you know, Cox router you have in your house at some point is not going to do just do Wi-Fi. It'll do 5g too. And the main reason is because the, the chip does both that's in there. So, okay. You know, great. Um, but you know, but it's sort of, you know, whether one can go and pursue this in, in the enterprise business. And, and, and I think, um, um, yeah, I mean, operators sit down and say, if you want to continue doing interesting things in the connectivity space towards your large enterprise customers, then there's a big opportunity in private networking. Right. Um, and one should go and do a good job of that. Uh, and, uh, a lot of the people that have been doing this direct to enterprises before will keep on doing this. And, uh, you know, if you want to be a good vendor in that space, then you should go do a good job and run a good business and take care of your customers and do all the good normal. But I I would never describe it as like a threat. I mean, private, private 5g is not going to make people like stop buying a smartphone and getting a plan and getting a phone for the kids and that kind of thing. It's not going to stop that stuff. And and that's the bulk of what people do. Right. And that's the main thing. Yeah. A couple more. The Verge has an article where they're talking about the Pixel 6. Oh, yeah. Google's take on (laughs) an ultra high-end phone. And it has, uh, Google has this chip called the Tensor, am I supposed to say SOC or SOC or how do I say it? On the show, we pronounce all acronyms. So (laughs) SOC. It's SOC. SOC. Yeah. And it's named after tensor processing units, TPUs, that they use in their data center. But it's not yeah. a single processor. Yeah. Um, and it's not clear which components are Google-made and which are licensed from others. 
but it, it sounds it sounds pretty cool. And if you look at the pictures of the phone, it's kind of interesting. For those who haven't seen it yet, the sh- it's going to be in our show notes, uh, which you can go to uh, livingontheedge.show. And yeah. apparently they're going to be coming out with two slightly different Pixel phones, the Pixel 6 and the Pixel 6 Pro. And these yeah. prototypes were shown and it looks really, really nice. Like these are said to be the best phones build wise that Google has ever made. They've got a kind of interesting, I don't know, what do you call it? Have you looked at the pictures of it? Sort of like mm-hmm. a strip that goes horizontally across the top part of the back of the phone where the camera is. So instead of having a yeah, camera it's, bump, it's, it's- Really what you'd call sort of a hole punch style camera. Yeah. Yeah. You've got a, a strip, like a belt, like it's wearing a a little belt across the top, just across the back. And it looks really Mm -hmm. cool. I mean, this is pretty interesting. It's got a 6.7 inch QHD plus display. It's got 120 Hertz refresh rate. Uh, The screen has a slight curve around the edges. Uh, Mm -hmm. Very good fit and finish from what the article says. And then the regular Pixel 6 is a 6.4-inch FHD plus screen, 90 uh, hertz refresh rate. And these things look really cool. They've got an in-display fingerprint sensor, which is the holy grail, the thing everybody wants and has talked about forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Do you spend more time on an iPhone or on an Android phone? Uh, Well, I I tend to... I have the latest iPhone, Mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. And I have... um, the gigantic Samsung S20 Note 5G mm-hmm. phone. Yeah. yeah, so I have both. Um, yeah, I mean, the, like the Samsung phones. I mean, it's, it's I mean, it's a it's it's a 108 megapixel camera. It's an 8K display with an 8K video. Yeah, camera. I mean, yeah. that's an that's an amazing stats, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I so I always have one of each. Which one do yeah. you prefer? Which do you use more? Uh, I will, I'll, I'll, you know, watch videos, uh, on the Samsung phone while on the toilet and but then I probably <laughs> do more on the iPhone. <laughs> no, but literally, I mean, it's one of these, um, you know, I take more pictures, videos and watch more things on the Samsung device. Cause I mean, it's a stunning device from that perspective. But, um, you know, when I listen to, yeah, cause I mean, I have so much music on the Apple thing, for example. Um, Right, so there's just tons of stuff on there. So I, I tend to do more um, phone call and messaging and email and and uh, that kind of stuff on the on the iPhone. Sure, but, makes sense. Um, but I tend to actually consume and do more media things on the Samsung. Yeah, but that that makes sense. And, and I think you know, look, the the bigger thing on here, which makes sense that people may or may not understand, it's just the whole system on the chip concept. Um, and that is a, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, a, a, a traditional PC that you use, uh, the system is the motherboard and then on right. the motherboard, you got a bunch of chips and you'll have literally the typical, um, central CPU that's present there, but you may have a GPU that's separate that you slot in and the memory's in another thing. And, you know, you have that, that sort of thing where typically what you're thinking of is, you know, you have a, um, you know, a motherboard and then you got a whole bunch of components that you go and slot slot around. In the system on chip design, what it means is that the, the chip is the motherboard. So you're looking at like the same as like imagine, you know, a CPU you'd be staring at, but um in that singular chip, you know, is your CPU, it's your memory, all your IO, the storage, your GPUs in there, 
uh, the thing doing, you know, uh, cellular and Wi-Fi connectivities in there, you know, so you literally basically have, um, you know, a, a full system on a chip, you know, versus a bunch of chips on a board. Um, and of course, system on chips are what's traditionally used in smartphones because they're miniaturized devices and tablets and other embedded systems, you know, uh, the routers you have at home and, you know, that type of thing. Uh, and then, of course, what's pretty cool about like the latest Apple um, laptops and stuff that's based on, you know, the Apple done CPU, quote unquote, you know, they sort of started switching off Intel. Right. Is that that's a that's a that's a system on chip design in those. Absolutely. Um, and uh, and, there, and there's sort of, you know, a ton of advantages to that. Uh, and uh, so, you know, this system on chip design, you know, I think the big part of this article is just that. Literally, the tensor processing unit, which is like the AI um, uh, chip that they've done in the data center. Uh, now you just go in the system on chip design. There's just some open real estate there, and they pop that TPU right there. Um, and that you know that makes a ton of sense. I mean, there's a lot of things that from a tensor processing unit. If you look at the fundamental math that it does, the fundamental math is the basis of AI. But it's also the, a lot of the fundamental math is a lot of the intelligence behind 5G and Wi-Fi too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, what I mean by that is it's it's still literally solving the same type of matrices and still doing the same type of thing. Um, and so um, those tensor processing units are definitely applicable to doing a lot of intelligent things on the phone. You know, so you know its presence could mean, and it's and it's not terribly different than I think what. Apple called it a neural core or something is what they call it, you know, on that. Um, but, you know, basically all these devices are just becoming more awesome because that system on chip has more and more of those types of capabilities. And I think when we start looking at either a TPU being present there or uh, the neural core, you know, sort of being present there mm-hmm. on the, the Apple A-series chips mm-hmm. is that um, a lot more intelligent things can be done around the device and and people can see it either in relatively back-end things, like just significantly greater battery life, uh, much better sort of like uh, connectivity sharing and that type of thing, you know, meaning like seamlessly switching between, you know, Wi-Fi and 5G as you leave the house and not having it, you know, disconnect or do some things there um, to, you know, cooler, you know, real-time, you know, filters, right? So be the whole thing, but yeah, it makes a ton of sense. But system on chip. System on chip. Keep Makes on sense. going. Yeah. yeah. Um, Japanese telco SoftBank has unveiled its 6G concept. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 A little bit of yeah, ahead we can of make the that curve one. There, we can make say. that one short because I, I think what's funny is uh, the, the quote that Yuji uh, uh, did in there, which is, you know, up to 4G mobile networks were designed for smartphone usage. After 5G, the advent of 6G will transform mobile networks and the network infrastructure to support the digitization of all industries. Which the funny part is network infrastructure that will support the digitization of all industries is mm-hmm. the marketing for 5G. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, you know, it is a, uh, you know, SoftBank has always been uh, an advanced company uh, from, you know, a technology standpoint. He runs the advanced technology division at SoftBank. So it's natural that, you know, they're talking about 5G. I and mean, what I love about this is that people have to remember that 5G as a standard, you know, was finally wrapped up and done in 2020. Um, by 2024, 2025, 6G will start, you know, pre-6G and what, what it sort of looks like will start rolling out. And by 2030, it'll all be 
6G being rolled out. You know, right. so one sure. thing we have to keep in mind about any of these generational things is that you have to really think of it as more of 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G. Now, from the transition of 4G to 5G, there's actually a lot that's changed, um, largely because the influence of so many other industries, you know, like the entire technology space that's emerged and public cloud providers and everything else. 5G, 6G, 7G, 8G, I think the next 4Gs almost have to be thought together as a cohesive unit. And then what people will see is there are things that back in 2016, people wanted to be in 5G, but it didn't make it in the 5G, but it's still on the slate to show up in 6G. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of the marketing we see around 5G today is going to come to fruition in 6G. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it's good to see SoftBank recognizing that. Give me an example of some of these things that you're talking about that didn't make it in. Uh, I mean, like, you know, basically 5G right now is going to come down. It's just more bandwidth, you know, but all the, all the, all the ideas that you're going to have, um, low latency control systems, controlling fleets of drones, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. I mean, you know, when you start heading into, um, a lot of the more collaborative, larger scale, augmented reality elements. Um, you know, all those types of use cases people talk about, but basically things that look like um, um, control systems for fleets of anything autonomous. Okay, so any devices that are moving around on their own. Um, a lot of the, a ton of video is going to come in and we're going to do the following computer vision, AI, you know, for the purposes of new types of, you know, um, media experiences that you would call mixed reality, augmented reality, you know, the, 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 those types of things. When you, when you look at the, the functional needs um, of all the use cases people tend to talk about, the functional needs of these use cases come down to sort of a multimodal, multi-display you know, interactive, personalized, collaborative, social media consumption, you know, type experience, you know, or they come down to like a lot of videos coming into the network and you're part of a computer vision AI pipeline that's hybrid with, you know, some elements on a public cloud provider, or you're looking at, you know, almost traffic management type concepts around semi-autonomous and autonomous devices and that sort of like living there. When you go look at all the, you know, the, the hundreds of use cases that are out there from like a quote unquote edge perspective, and you look at the true functional needs of them, and then you ask, you know, are 5G networks able to serve those functional needs by having like native edge services that provides the functionality to being that type of interactive, personalized experience? The answer is no. <laughs> so they don't exist. You know, it's like you get more bandwidth and you get some more, some, some more other stuff. So... You know, it's one of these things where it's fair to say that 5G, despite anything I think anybody else says, took a lot of the connectivity stuff up another notch, but it didn't really do all the functional things that are needed for all these interesting hundreds and hundreds of different use cases people are talking about. There's not, you sort of sit down and say, ah, there's a native 5G service that does this. And there's 12 of those that do these things, and that supports that multimodal, interactive, personalized, collaborative type AR experience out there like that. Or now you can go ahead and have 
You know, the Civil Aviation Authority can go ahead and launch its traffic management system for federated drones of, you know, that sort of stuff. Or, you know, how are we going to sort of track cars better? You know, all those kind of things, right? Um, yeah, none of that's there in 5G. You can't point to 5G somewhere and say, ah, there's the network elements that actually help cars not collide into each other. I get it. Right? Right. So that's, that's what I mean. You know, it's, it's literally just more bandwidth, you know, and a bunch of, you know, other sort of, other sort of things that are helpful to the operator. But, um, you know, the typical promise of and what we're looking at just... If you sort of go, okay, well, show me, show me, show me exactly where that is in the code or in the offering or in the sort of this, or, you know, where's the API go interact with? Oh, we're not there. We're not there yet. And, and when you look at the timing of that and where you could put that from a standardization standpoint to suggest that people develop it and what's sort of needed there and you have some common concept and what the interoperability looks like, that the timing of that will run up with the timing of 6G, period. Edge so. Edge Radio, Jason. Yeah, I I don't I've never heard of Edge Radio. You know, I'm I'm a radio guy. I like radio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that's a thing. Like radio is cool. I've always liked radio. Edge Radio networks need government support. Uh, is what this article in uh, DataCenterDynamics.com is uh-huh. talking about. And I didn't know that their radio networks were doing anything with Edge. But unless they're not talking about the kind of radio that I like, talking about some other kind of radio, radio access network, RAN, RAN. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, not the kind of radio uh, I want to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. But it's, it's just that, um, um, radio waves are electromagnetic radiation, Mm -hmm. um, that go from, um, like, you know, 20, 30 Hertz up to 300 gigahertz. Mm-hmm. So it just describes a little bit of that that sort of range, um, and uh, so ra- radio waves is what radio, like the FM, AM radio, mm-hmm. um, television, cellular phones, right? All that just lives in the radio waves, um, and uh, literally the Wi-Fi and cellular networks that you connect to in the industry, they call them radio access networks. Mm. That's all that. That's all that is. It's not as interesting to me. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's. It's literally just. It's just that cellular networks, like the wireless networks you connect to, use radio waves, mm-hmm. and within the industry, they call them radio access networks. So it's nothing interesting. Nothing. We got open open ran, but it is. Uh, yeah, yeah. And they say that in the article that open ran needs a change of, of mindset. I, I, it's a, it's a, you know, the whole article's a bizarre article, in my opinion. It's so, long. I mean, there's a lot. I, know, I read this I whole thing, and I they're talking just, about, uh, I think know, it's global it's tension so many, so many, and the role so that the Chinese I, I, vendors I are playing I, you know, it's, in it's, the infrastructure. It, it goes back to like what I was saying earlier, Dan, and I think we can wrap on it, and that is just that you have a country, the country has air above the ground. Mm-hmm. Countries own the ground, and they own the air above the ground. And the air is electromagnetic radiation slash light slash heat slash, you know, like sort of whatever, but, but it's basically energy and, and the government regulates the air too. Uh, and some of the most interesting parts of the air, uh, are the parts that sit in the literally what you call the radio part of the electromagnetic Mm -hmm. spectrum. Um, and that's used for communication purposes and it's been used 
literally that way the whole last century. You know, so, um, and, uh, you know, meaning like even like last week when I think we were talking about, you know, CB, CBRS. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of, uh, you know, in there. That's the citizen broadband radio service that sits in 3550 megahertz to 3700 megahertz in the United States. It's that sort of like part um, of it, you know, but, you know, CBRS um, is just a almost homage to the citizens band radio, aka <laughs> CB radio, right? Um, which was 40 channels that lived, um, you know, around, you know, 20, 30 megahertz, if you will, and, and had quote unquote short wave things. Um, and then you have, you know, the amateur radio, which was ham radio. Um, you know, that was this non-commercial little sort of spot, you know, in there, you know, but, um, but it's all, it's all radio waves at the end of the day. And then, um, yeah, for some reason in the telco space, they, you know, guys like Ericsson and Nokia, they sell radio access networks. It's just a, what they call it. But, um, but they don't, <laughs> they don't, they're not selling things that help you do a radio station. Yeah. I know mean, nobody's <laughs> perfect, you know. <laughs> oh, so, uh, but that's it. That's all we got. That's all we got this week, Jason. That's that was, it. That's that everything. A, that's a lot. That's almost too much, Dan. Almost too much. It might be for, too much. Yeah. It yeah. might be. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much as always. And, uh, you know, hopefully people find it helpful. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I feel so like they, point, they will, or that they do. Some point. Uh, so you're gonna like you know, Google radio waves. I mean, I'm gonna probably spend the Read next week it. learning about radio waves. Yeah, I think I, I think I have to because apparently everything's either matter or energy, and that's important. For so me, for that's me gonna be my focus on, yeah. until next week. That's right. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Jason. Mm-hmm.